Hey listeners, my name is Kayla and I am the creator and host of a new podcast called Dark Tales from the Road. We cover true crime, spooky, creepy, and ghostly stories, and I want to take you state by state and country by country to bring you stories you may not have even heard of before, and also learn some history on the city and the state where it takes place. So join me on the road as we discover dark tales. New episodes are posted every Wednesday. I have an Instagram, Facebook, and a Patreon, all at Dark Tales from the Road. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a great day. Crime Scene and Cupcakes is an independent podcast created in the Anchor app, funded mainly through advertising. The podcast often has coarse language and disturbing content. Please listen wisely. Hey guys, it's Marianne, Dogmont Baker, true crime podcast maker, and you may have noticed you've gotten quite a few episodes this week. Don't get too used to it. We've had a bit of a backlog since we had a little bit of an issue with Anchor, and Anchor's support was amazing. They helped us work through it. They fixed it. It just took a little bit of time, but once we got it together, we got it done. It's been amazing. So, very, very happy to have our Anchor app back up and working. So, big shout out and thank you to Anchor. The trailer you just heard was Kayla from Dark Tales from the Road. I thought it was very appropriate to feature Dark Tales from the Road because we are hitting the road again with a case from Horton, Kansas. I found this case quite by accident. I was going through the channels and sometimes I like to take a break from true crime, especially after pouring my heart out as I did recently uh, about the case of Krista Martin. But there was this case that I just kind of clicked on on the Investigation Discovery Channel and I heard the word Kansas. And whenever I hear that, obviously being in Kansas, it definitely got my attention. And as I started listening to this case, I thought, oh my Lord, this is insane. This is absolutely crazy what this family had to go through. And I looked and I wanted to see if there were other podcasts out there about this case. And there wasn't. Now, there are two shows about it. Um, I saw a show on Investigation Discovery, and then looking, there's another one on Oxygen True Crime. And we'll get into what each one of those are about here shortly. And it looks like there's another one that is going to be coming out of Hiawatha, Kansas. Yeah, the family is definitely wanting to push awareness about this case. We're going to get into how amazing Patricia, Pat, Kimmy's family is. So, again, the case is about Patricia Kimmy from Horton, Kansas. I wanted to just explain to you guys a little bit about Horton, Kansas. So, Horton was founded in 1886. It was named for Albert H. Horton, who was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. 
I also found it interesting that on January 22, 2013, the host of CNBC television show The Prophet, he toured Horton in hopes of revitalizing Horton's downtown business district. And within 18 months, the community started the Reinvent Horton campaign. And they started to clean up the community and update some of the rundown aspects of it, including the installation of curbs, sidewalks, and light poles. They built up some of the buildings and the large community effort to try to change the town. Now, it's known for its Amelia Earhart Museum because she lived in the Atchison, Kansas area from 1897 to 1937. It's also home to several casinos. So truthfully, I have never been to Horton, Kansas, but there was one thing that really caught my eye and I was ready to pack my bags. There was the 1889 McIntyre Villa. So the McIntyre Villa is one of the Atchison, now Horton's in Atchison County. I think that's what it is. Don't quote me on that. It's one of the most unique residences there. And that's where people can stay for a bit of ghost hunting. In fact, I found a whole list. There's like a tour of the haunted places of Atchison. And I just wanted to like immediately holler at my favorite podcasters who are into the paranormal. Like, that's not good. Nocturnal distractions. And of course, Kayla from Dark Tales from the Road. And I'm like, all right, let's jump into the Ghost Facers Tahoe and go check this out because it sounds like a great time. So just to tell you a little bit about the McIntyre Villa. It was built in 1889 for and stretched into 1890 for a man named John McIntyre, who was an Irishman, a pioneer businessman of the Atchison area. At the haunted villa, people have said that they have seen lights go on and off in the tower, which for those of you who I was kind of shocked to find out, it doesn't have any electricity running to it. Figures are sometimes seen in the window. A speaker was thrown off a counter and boxes were moved. There's a rocking chair where Goldie was known to have died and it rocks back and forth slamming doors at night, and there are many more incidences that people talk about. But we're not here to talk about the McIntyre Villa. We're here to talk about something that happened, something sinister that happened more recently in Horton, Kansas. A crime that some family members believe there were quite a few more players in that have gotten away with murder. And that's the case of Patricia Pat Kimmy. Now, people say it is one of the highest profile cases in Atchison County history. As I said, this small town was visited by filmmakers from Investigation Discovery, as well as Oxygen True Crime. And there's been quite a few other true crime filmmakers that have been coming to the area to talk about this crime as well. But... I want to focus on Patricia Kimmy for a moment. Now, Patricia was born Patricia Gray, and she was born on October 6, 1951, in Key West, Florida. 
to Eugene and Dorothy Gray. She was a devout Catholic woman who loved animals and she loved the simple life. She loved farmland and peace. But that's not what she got when she married Eugene Kimmy in 1970. When they married, their relationship did see a lot of land and a successful sawmill. Now, even though the sawmill was known for its success around Horton, Kansas, the opposite would be said about their marriage. Eugene's children in interviews on Oxygen TV and in that show, Murder Comes to Town, the episode is called Horror in the Heartland. And again, it's on investigation discovery. The children often would discuss the verbal abuse Pat would get under Eugene's hand. But she believed she was Catholic. She took her vows. She would stay steady under this abuse. She believed it's better for the children. Now, I want to just say for those people who believe that, psychological studies believe the opposite is true. Children don't fare well in abusive households. And in fact, a lot of children who see that type of abuse, they go on to abuse their partners. So if you are experiencing violence, verbal, emotional, whatever in your household, you need to find help. And we will have those helplines and those tip line numbers on our social media. Again, we would just like to say here at Crime Scene and Cupcakes, if you are experiencing any type of abuse in your relationship, whether it's verbal, emotional, physical, financial, regardless of gender or sexual orientation or marital status, you need to please seek help. We will again be providing numbers, tip line and chats and different options that you can have. Also remember, when you are getting out of these relationships, that is the highest time of danger. So working with somebody is going to help you prepare a plan. And working with somebody who has training in this will increase your odds of having the best prepared plan. So again, if you are in a dangerous situation or if you are being abused, we encourage you, please seek help to remove yourself and your family from that relationship. Now, that continued to endure this because being a Catholic, you know, divorce is not looked upon well. It's you endure your vows. But Eugene did not think the same thing about the vows. And everyone has their breaking point. And Pat's was when she heard, because in every small town, nobody can hide secrets, especially the juicy bit of gossip of infidelity. And when Pat heard that Eugene was being unfaithful and with the urging of her own children, she ended the 38 years of marriage. 
And so in March of 2007, Pat files for divorce and everyone in the family, they state that that divorce was extremely contentious. The way Eugene saw things, even after 38 years of marriage, it was his land, his sawmill, and his money. And Pat didn't deserve a damn thing. But luckily, the courts did not see it that way. And, you know, you would think, okay, he has to pay alimony. That's the way it goes. Sorry, that's the way the cookie crumbles. But you know what? She endured 38 years of marriage to you. So it sucks, but that's the way it goes. Be an adult, put on your big boy pants and move on. But not Eugene. He cried to everyone all the time from how reports say it. Eugene cried in his beer. He cried at work. And he was constantly telling everyone how much better his life would be if Pat was no longer in it. And he wasn't very subtle about his intentions either. On the other hand, though, you have Pat. She's living her best life now. She's got enough money to buy some land. She has her animals and she's enjoying life with her kids and her 12 grandchildren. But here's the problem with owning farmland in Kansas. Your neighbors aren't very close. And when you don't have neighbors nearby, they can't hear your cries for help. On November 7th, 2009, Pat was supposed to go shopping with her friend, Sharon Blakely. However, Sharon couldn't get a hold of her that day. Pat wasn't returning her calls from the day before either. So Pat's daughter, Rita Bowler, drives over to her mother's house. But the minute she pulls into the driveway, she knows something is wrong because Pat has these really cute decorative items on her porch, but they're all askew. They're knocked over and things just don't look right. There's this little wooden gate that goes across the staircase on the front porch that's been ripped off and thrown aside. And then when Rita gets to the front door, she notices it's ajar. She goes into the house and it looks like Pat's just been there. The drapes are open. She walks into the kitchen. She's like, what the hell is going on here? And she finds Pat's cell phone. She finds Pat's purse. These are not things a woman leaves behind. Again, especially a woman in rural America. In these areas, women know they need these things. It's not like you can just pop back by. It's a drive into town. That brings up another point. Pat's vehicle was still there. Rita's concerned, but she doesn't want to seem like she's overreacting. So she phones her brother, Tony. So Tony drives over to the house and within minutes of arriving, he tells her to call the sheriff because he knows this shit ain't right. The Atchison County Sheriff was quickly dispatched to the Patricia Kimmy's home. 
and he sees the disarray the, and he notices blood droplets in the driveway and he immediately knows it's a crime scene and calls all hands on deck. So the Atchison County Sheriff's Sergeant, Jeremy Peake, he started immediately with Pat's children. Now you always want to start with those closest to the victim. Because you know this is a victim. You've got blood. You've got a totally messed up home. Something's not right here. And you want to ask them, do they have anybody who might wish them harm? And of course, there is the one man who has been crying all over town. How much easier his life would be if Pat wasn't around. And that is Eugene Kimmy. So the sheriff goes to the sawmill and they go to question Eugene. And Eugene, it's a small town, so you got to know news travels fast. He has to know, A, the police are coming, and B, Pat's missing. But when the police get there, Eugene is propped up behind his desk in his office, drinking a beer. And they ask him, you know, do you know where Pat is? Do you know what's going on? And he answers like he just doesn't have a care in the world. And it's like, nope, don't know where she is. Didn't have anything to do with it. I don't know anything. So they asked him where he has been the previous night, and all of those things. And he's like, finished work, went home alone, watched a movie. His property is on the same property. His house is on the same property as the sawmill. And of course, they're like, oh, home alone, huh? That sounds a little fishy. But Eugene called his girlfriend and they were able to corroborate all the information. So now Eugene's on the back burner, but he's not taken off the board. In the meantime, search teams, volunteers, and search canines have begun the search shoulder to shoulder, inch by inch, looking for any evidence that might lead them to Pat Kimmy. And around 1215, an officer finds a camouflage baseball cap with the name of Sailor Insurance. Now that's a local insurance company on it. Not knowing if it could be a clue or not, they bag it and tag it and continue to comb the area. And not far away, they find a bloody money clip, a bloody cologne bottle, and a detached cap a bloody velvet brown bag that had another bag in it with a 22 Magnum live rounds and some 22 Magnum shells and a bloody latex glove, a trail of blood that leads investigators to believe they have found a secondary crime scene. Now all of this is get sent off for DNA, but Officers can't wait. They have a missing person. They got to move. Now, on Investigation Discoveries, murder comes to town. Investigators state that while conducting the search in the area, during the evening, one of the officers hears a loud vehicle. They look up to see a large reddish-colored truck, like a dually, 
coming up the road, but when it sees police cars, it backs up and turns back around. One of the officers attempts to try to catch the vehicle, but it was too late, it was dark, and they weren't able to. But now they've got their thinking caps on. A reddish-colored dually might have something to do with this. The next day, volunteers and family are back at it, assisting in the search first thing. They are not letting the ball go. They're going to find Pat Kimmy. And one of the volunteers comes across a Walmart receipt dated for the day Pat went missing. This could be it. This could be the last thing Pat purchased before she met up with her abductor. Or it could be the last thing her abductor purchased before meeting up with Pat. So when investigators get to the store and review CCTV, what they see for the time and register stamped on the receipt, because as I've told you guys before, Walmart, some of the best cameras, the best stamps, if you're going to commit a crime, don't go to Walmart. Walmart is probably one of the best for law enforcement. But this doesn't give up the ghost for law enforcement this time. What they see is a young couple, like high school or college age, and they're buying cosmetics. But it's kind of weird because the receipt is the day that Pat went missing and the time isn't too far off. So this is weird. It's these aren't exactly hardened criminals preparing to abduct a well-loved grandmother from her home. So they know something's weird about this, but they're not quite sure how this fits the puzzle. But here's the thing about living in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. It's either a really good thing or it can really suck. But for law enforcement, it can be an extremely good thing. Now, it just so happens that this young man, he happened to be the son of one of the Atchison police officers. So when word gets out about the video footage, you damn well better believe that boy was in the chair talking to investigators as soon as possible. Now, it just so happened that he was on a date with a young lady friend and they did go to the store to purchase a few things. And then they went to a local area that was known where young people go to hang out, drink a few beers that they had brought in a cooler, and do what young people do. Now, the young couple were more interested in each other than any of the events that might be happening in Horton, Kansas that night. In fact, they were so wrapped up in each other that when they left the area, the young man left his cooler behind. So he returns a little bit later around midnight, and he stated that around that time, he had seen a distinctive red pickup truck. It had dual rear tires on each side, which again, is often known as a dually, and it was parked not far from Patricia's home. He also told authorities that as he drove by the truck, he thought he had seen a pair of legs kicking 
back and forth on the ground. Now again, this is a popular spot for people to go for certain activities, so he didn't know whether this could be important or not. But investigators, they know, okay, we again have a red truck and it's a dually. So they start running matches between sailor insurance on the cap and red trucks. Also, in the meantime, small town gossip reigns. And it helps because police and family, they start posting flyers all over town. Now, in rural America, that's how you get stuff done. Because not everyone is on the Facebook and those types of things. So, you post flyers. You post the information. You post them in coffee shops. You post them in diners. People are going to see it. People are going to start talking about it. And that's what they do. Someone phones in a tip about a subcontractor that didn't have such a great relationship with the missing Pat Kimmy. His name is Lance Bell. He had done some work around Pat's home and reportedly Pat was unhappy with how Lance had done the work. To make matters more suspicious, Lance had a criminal record. So police start looking at a criminal record. He has a red truck complicated relationship with Pat. Then, to make matters worse, they find blood in the bed of the truck. Now, Lance immediately starts sputtering. Nope, 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 nope. I was deer hunting. It is not what it looks like. And I immediately was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just do a rapid field test. That's what you do in forensics? What is the problem here? And then it was like, oh, this is 2009 in rural Kansas. They didn't have that yet. So off to DNA it goes, which takes forever. So while detectives are waiting on those results, they turn to the ball cap at the scene. And again, have to take that, turn it to DNA, and it's another waiting game. And in the meantime, Pat's family is waiting. Their mother is missing. Everybody is in a waiting game. But the police are not waiting. They're still looking. Red truck, sailor insurance, and another name pops up. Roger Hollister, He's had some run-ins with Patricia through the gossip vine in town. And everybody knows he has a violent temper. So the Atchison investigators roll to Roger Hollister's house. Now he's got a farmland not far from Patricia. And when they find him, he's in the cow lot tending to his cattle with his wife, Rebecca. However, they take one look at him and they think, oh, they're fucked. There is no way this is him. He doesn't look like the kind of man who could harm anybody. He's got a neck brace on. He's limping with a cane. He's an older guy. He's completely frail. So, but again, remember, this has now been about a month since Pat's disappearance. And... This is the Atchison County Undersheriff Larry Meyer who had gone to Hollister's farm. 
and he starts questioning Roger Hollister. And Roger Hollister admits that he knows Eugene now. Now, he does know Eugene pretty well, and he does business at the Kimmy Sawmill. But he denies that he knows Patricia at all. Patricia Kimmy, I, who is that? I, I don't think I really know her. I, she's missing? Huh, that's kind of crazy. Now, Hollister admits that he had owned a red Dooley pickup truck, but, oh man, I sold that a while back for $2,000. And, you know, here's the receipt. I, nope, nope, no problem there. And then when asked if he owned any sailor insurance ball caps, he says, oh yeah, I own several of those. I, I'm friends with the owner. So that's not anything odd. That's not a big deal at all. So the investigators look at this and go, gosh, this guy is so forthcoming. And they're like, hey, Roger, can you give us some DNA? Oh, well, hell yeah, I'll give you DNA. Not a problem. So investigators go back to Pat's family telling them Roger Hollister is not their man. He was so forthcoming. He's frail. He's not it. So, Pat Kimmy's family is just, they don't know what to do. They're not getting answers. They can't find their mom. Their grandchildren don't understand what's going on. And they they don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. There are no answers. And they're fumbling in the dark. The searches have been going. They're putting news out there every which way they can. And the police are not giving them anything. And I know how frustrating that feels. Then, on January 18th, and this is about two months after Pat's been missing, Eugene's nephew, DJ Kimmy, DJ comes in to talk to law enforcement. And he tells them Hollister had just come by the sawmill looking for Eugene. And so DJ tells Roger, well, Eugene's not available. And so Hollister says, well, Eugene trusts you, so I will too. And then Hollister starts to lay out these, this, this story. And DJ is just, holy shit. Hollister tells DJ that he had been questioned by law enforcement and had given them a, D, a DNA sample. And DJ's, okay, well, law enforcement had also taken Eugene's DNA as well. And Hollister then goes, well, I told Eugene to watch what he wished for and that I would take care of his problem for him. And Hollister asked DJ if Eugene was still paying Patricia's alimony. DJ indicated, well, yeah, of course he is. She's missing. She's not dead. It says these haunting words. Well, she's never going to be found. So she's not here to take him back to court. So he's not going to have to keep paying her. Now, this information is from the testimony of DJ Kimmy on the court docket of the state versus Roger Hollister, and I found that on caselaw.com. So Hollister then talked about the money Eugene owed him, saying, 
when he came through, or he needs to come through, it cost me $70,000. It wiped me out. It took all my money. I'm here to recoup my money. Hollister also wanted $10,000 to pay for his pickup that he had to crush because it matched the description of the pickup that they were looking for and he couldn't take any chances. DJ told Hollister that Eugene didn't have that kind of money and his bank accounts were being monitored. But Hollister replied that Eugene had told him that he had some money stashed. Hollister told DJ to tell Eugene that he was looking for him. He needed his money. And if anyone asked about his visit to the sawmill, to tell them that he was there to get some oak. So police are now armed with all of this new knowledge and go back to Roger Hollister. And they meet a totally different Roger Hollister. This Roger Hollister is minus a neck brace, a cane, and he looks like he could beat the shit out of anybody. So, please realize they've been duped. So, they follow up on Hollister's truck. And come to find out, contrary to Hollister's statement about selling his pickup truck, law enforcement learned that he had sold his truck a few days after Patricia's disappearance to Brinkman Brothers Chevy dealership in Tecumseh, Nebraska. The dealership accepted Hollister's 1998 Red Dodge Crew Crab, Crew Cab, not Crab, Crew Cab Dooley pickup truck, which was described as extremely clean. As a trade-in, when Hollister purchased a 2000 Chevy truck. The day after the sale, Hollister called the dealership and asked if there was a money clip in his old pickup truck. There was not. You know why? Because police have it. A week later, Hollister called and asked if the dealership still had his old truck because he wanted to purchase it back. The truck had not been sold and Hollister bought it back interviewing Hollister again and again and again. And during one interview, Meyer told Hollister that investigators knew he had sold his pickup to the Brinkman Brothers dealership. And Hollister responded that the truck back from the dealership for 5400 and then sold it for 6500 So he made an $1,100 profit. And when questioned again about the sailor insurance ball cap, Hollister said, oh, my dog got a hold of it. It's laying in the yard. Part of it's still there. The dog chewed it up. So, so many stories. I mean, Hollister is laying it on thick. And so the officer says, my money clip. And he goes, oh, I got my money clip right here. And it looks kind of similar, but they know it's not the same one. So Hollister's crap is beginning to back up like a bad septic tank, let me tell you. But the DNA on the ball cap comes back. It's a match to Hollister. The blood belongs to Pat Kimmy. Also, law enforcement officers looking for Hollister's red dually pickup truck 
learned that Hollister had recently done business with Smitty Salvage Yard in Axtell, Kansas. An officer explained to the salvage yard owner that investigators were looking for a red pickup truck. The owner, the owner showed the officer a crushed and burnt cab of a four-door pickup truck that had been anonymously left on what appeared to be a homemade grain cart. Red paint could still be seen around the edge of the cab. Investigators were able to identify the vehicle uh, VID number on one portion and a derivative number on another portion. These numbers matched the identification on the title of the Dodge pickup truck belonging to Hollister. Now, based on the information gathered through the investigation, law enforcement officers obtained and executed a search warrant on Hollister's property. The executing officers found a burn pit. There, they were able to locate a muffler and other vehicle parts. Nearby, they found a backhoe tracks in the snow, leading them to dig in a ditch where they found partial bed of a pickup truck and that had been burnt and smashed. So they're like, okay, come on. This is just, this is getting to be too much. So after the search, Hollister and his attorney, they contacted Meyer and offered to make yet another statement. And Hollister began the recorded interview by saying he had previously tried to hide what had happened because he was scared for his life and his daughter's life. He then told officers that on Friday night, the night Patricia disappeared, Eugene knocked on Hollister's door and asked to borrow Hollister's dually pickup truck. Although Hollister did not know Eugene very well, they had done business together and Hollister trusted him. Consequently, he allowed Eugene to take the pickup truck. When Hollister woke up Saturday morning, the pickup truck had been returned and it was extremely clean and had a full tank of gas. A few days later, Hollister traded in the pickup truck for another at the dealership in Nebraska. But again, remember, police had been able to corroborate where Eugene was the night Pat disappeared. So this was just another line of Hollister's bullcrap. And on farmland, there's a lot of that. Authorities were closing in on Roger, and he knew it. Investigators were searching the sawmill, they were searching his farm, and they were relentless to find Pat. Remember the subcontractor, Lance Vell? The guy who had done time and... The police were looking at him hard because he had blood in the back of his truck. They had looked at him before they went to Roger Hollister. Before they discounted Roger Hollister because he was a frail old man. But Lance Bell, he was on the radar. He was an ex-con. Well, it turned out the DNA came back. And the DNA showed that that blood was, well, it was deer blood. And Lance Vell, Lance Vell was exactly where he said he was. And he had actually no problems with Pat Kimmy. 
They resolved their differences. He went back. He fixed the problem on the contracting job he had. And they walked away just fine with one another. So, yeah. Don't always look and judge a book by its cover. Investigators know talking to Roger just gets him more lies, more crap, more nothing. But all of this was going on on Roger Hollister's farm. The buried truck, the burnt truck, a lot of hinky stuff. And there was somebody else living on that farm that may have some knowledge as to what was going on. And that was Roger's wife, Rebecca. So police decide to bring Rebecca in and ask her a few questions. The interview starts off with Rebecca denying any knowledge of where Pat might be, what may have happened to her, or what, if any involvement, her husband Roger could have had with her disappearance. Then suddenly, Rebecca asked if she could be excused to go to the restroom during questioning. And that's when shit gets weird. Roger Hollister, as she's going out of the interview room, she gets into the hallway. Roger Hollister grabs his wife by the arm and hustles her from the police station. Police say they lit out of the the police station like they were part of a great escape. Now, Rebecca wasn't under arrest, but... To be clear, investigators hadn't ended their questioning. They didn't state Rebecca was free to go or anything, but she was not under arrest. So they're kind of bewildered as to what's going on, but they can't go chase them. I mean, she wasn't under arrest. They can't do anything about it. But the next morning, investigators get a call. And that call could provide them with a break. Because it's not really a break for Rebecca. It was a terrifying fight for her life. Roger Hollister and his wife were involved in a head-on collision with a semi. Roger Hollister walked away with minor injuries. Rebecca was in the hospital And that's where investigators visited her. And they found out Roger Hollister's plan. See, his plan was to just evade police questioning for himself and Rebecca by murder-suicide. He would drive into traffic, killing them both. Rebecca, on the other hand, she wasn't too keen on this plan, and she tried to wrestle the wheel away from Hollister, but she wasn't that successful at it. But also, the police finally have some sort of case on Roger, and that's attempted murder on his wife. So, on March 4th, 2010, Roger Hollister is taken into custody on attempted murder charges. The next day, Hollister and his attorney contacted Meyer and offered to give a statement. In this recorded statement, Hollister admitted going to Patricia's house with Eugene, and Hollister indicated that in 
the September 2009 conversation at the sawmill, Eugene had said, If I could find someone to take care of my wife for $70,000, Hollister denied saying anything in reply. Hollister just kept spinning, story after story, and it just didn't match any of the evidence police had. Now, you would think with everything that's happened, Hollister trying to kill Rebecca, Rebecca being a woman and just knowing what her family's going through and having her own children, for God's sakes, that she would just immediately come clean and let the family know where Patricia is so that they could rest at night. But that didn't happen. She doesn't say anything until she is sure she's granted immunity from prosecution. So it is another two months later when Rebecca Hollister and her attorney contact law enforcement. The next day, Rebecca directs law enforcement to a location near the creek on adjoining property that belonged to Hollister's brother, but was managed by Hollister. Rebecca showed the officers a piece of green fabric and some human remains. A forensic pathologist examined the vertebrae body and a few ribs that were still attached and noticed a destruction line where the ribs appeared to have been cut in a straight line. There was no way to determine the destruction to the bones was antemortem or postmortem, nor could the pathologist determine the cause of death from the remains, but he did determine that death was a homicide. They did a reverse maternity test to determine that there was a 99.99% chance the bones were from Patricia Kimmy, mother of the Kimmy children. So they were finally able to determine where their mother and grandmother of their children were. During an interview on Investigation Discovery, Pat's daughter Rita discusses how Roger Hollister had not only taken their mother away from them, he had also taken away their right to bury her the way they wanted. They wanted to bury her in a casket to see her one last time. And he took that from them. All they had were fragments of bone. Roger Hollister ended up being convicted, but the story didn't end there. In 2013, Roger Hollister dies in prison, but he never shares the true story of what happened with Patricia Kimmy. Roger Hollister's family attempted to sue the El Dorado prison system for $1 million because they stated that the prison system allowed Roger Hollister to die. However, an autopsy concluded that he died of natural causes. The Kimmy family released a statement on a Facebook page about this course of events. In 2013, 
Patricia Kimmy's children file a wrongful death suit against their father. Because whatever the truth really is, Pat would not be dead if he had not knocked over that first domino. If he had not created the situation spouting the hateful rhetoric, creating the abuse and the verbal hatred, and then telling everybody how he wished she was dead. Now, records show Eugene Kimmy settled out of court for $200,000. Now, I know the children did that just to make a point, but I, I really wish they had gotten more. They deserved a lot more than that for what Eugene had done to them in their lives. So I wondered, what about Rebecca Hollister? Because really stuck in my craw about the role she played in this. So the appeals court justices did agree with the facts presented that although Rebecca did participate in the homicide, because she was connected to the crime by assisting her husband in the aftermath, She assisted him in his attempt to dispose of the vehicle. She was granted immunity. So she has no, the the kids did try to also bring a suit against her, but the immunity protected her. She's living her life in Topeka, Kansas. And Patricia Kimmy's family? Well, they have a Facebook page titled, People for Pat. They are active in the community. They have offered a local self-defense class for women. And they remind everyone the love for their mother and the grandmother that they had. When I went to Patricia Kimmy's obituary page and read the guest book, it was so touching to see the way She touched so many people's lives, and not just in Kansas, but from all over. Just to see the words that everyone shared with her. And I often do that in many of the victims' cases. I want to see the life they led, not only what somebody took away from them. And it's just so overwhelming to see that in so many of these cases. So I encourage others to do that. When you listen to these cases, take a moment and think about, it's about the victim and the people they left behind. And it's also, after listening to these cases, what can we do to make the world a little safer? As Kimmy's family did. As Pat Kimmy's family did in offering self-defense classes and reminding people of her story. Reminding her, people, to get out of abusive relationships in a safe and effective way. I want to remind you, let's all do what we can to make this world 
a little bit safer for our fellow humans. Thank you for listening and be safe. As always, we will have links to this case and this case information on our social media pages. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. You can find us everywhere. And we're also going to provide a link to the Facebook page titled People for Pat. It's amazing to see what the family continues to do for Pat Kimmy. And so you guys can get to know her a little bit more. We'll also provide a link so that if you guys want to see the true crime program that Investigation Discovery and Oxygen True Crime had put out about this case. And as always, we are continuing our investigation and hoping we can do everything we can into the case of Krista Martin. Anybody who has any information please go to the Wichita Police Department cold case unit page. Sorry, it's always difficult for me to talk about it. And please share any information you might have. Also, uncovered.com has Krista Martin's case there. We will provide information for you to link on there. We'll be back next week with a new case. Canines, Cranes, and Cupcakes, our bonus episode, has been lagging a little bit behind. It's just been a little overwhelming the last few weeks, but we will get up to date on that. Thank you guys all for listening. And again, don't forget to follow and listen to Dark Tales from the Road. Kayla is amazing. <laughs>